Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Sad Don Iveson edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell. We're recording on Friday, March 7th, because yesterday, our usual recording day, was budget day at the Alberta Legislature. And with me to talk about the budget and how it fits with the rest of what has been a pretty extreme week in Alberta politics are a duo of journal columnists. We've got David Staples from City Hall. Hello there. And Paula Simons from, well, pretty much wherever she pleases, I guess. Hello, Sarah. And we've got a senior editor, Kathy Kerr, here with us, and she oversaw the journal's budget team coverage yesterday. Hello. Thanks for joining us, Kathy. Now, we want to get right down to business. And Kathy, this is why you're here to give us an overview of what was in this 2014-15 budget. Okay, the big thing that was in it was black ink. So no matter how you calculate the uh, deficit or surplus, they actually do have a surplus this year. In, particularly in the operating side of the budget. They are going to take in more than they are going to spend on regular operations day-to-day for the province. So there's two ways to calculate it. Um, one way, the old way, pre-2013, uh, it would have been a $1.1 billion surplus. The new way that the province has, which is very strictly on the operating side, it's a $2.6 billion surplus. But on the flip side of this, we also are borrowing a whole heck of a lot of money. $5.1 billion in new borrowing for infrastructure. And some ways to calculate it, you end up with $14.5 billion in total debt. And that's based on the borrowing that we the province has done for capital in- infrastructure. That's roads and schools and hospitals and, and big buildings, that kind of thing. So it's not unlike us taking out the mortgage in order to pay for construction. Um, they do love that analogy. That's their favorite analogy is the mortgage analogy. They do, absolutely. I mean, we still think of a mortgage as a, as a debt, and but they still will say, oh no, we're not really in debt, we're just borrowing, which is a different kind of thing, really. Um, uh, the other thing that they are doing as well is they're going to be plowing a fair bit of money into savings. Um, they have uh, $24 billion in savings by next March. That means that their contingency fund, which is the immediate rainy day fund that they've had to draw in the last few years in order to actually balance the books, that's going to be up to the $5 billion level that they want it to be at and that they're going to hold it at. And and the rest of that savings is getting plowed into places like the Heritage Trust Fund. Um, the Heritage Trust Fund, they are uh, starting to break into various types of endowments. So they're doing some restructuring there in their savings. So this is an odd budget in the sense that there's black ink, there's borrowing, and there's this big weird restructuring of savings. And so what is the key way that this budget was different from the previous budgets that we've seen in the last, I don't know, six, seven years? Was it the, is it the, the operating surplus? Um, well, the operating surplus mattered for sure. I mean, they, they're saying this is, they keep saying that we're fully, uh, fully in the black. Uh, they're saying this, I think it's the first time in six years uh, that we've actually been doing that. Um, and they're continuing their calculation that they only started last year of how they really split the budget between capital and operating. Okay, thanks so much for joining us, Kathy. I appreciate that overview. Great, thanks a lot. So now that we've had that overview, After sleeping on this budget, David, Paula, what do you make of it? Good news? Bad news? A bit of both? It's such a peculiar mix, Sarah. You know, I mean, 
one of the things that really jumps out at me is that we are going to take in more in revenues this year than in any other year in Alberta's history. I mean, that's extraordinary. So that's the bitumen bubble going pop to a little bit. That's the price of oil going up. That's an extra billion dollars in transfer payments from Ottawa. And that's also a reflection of an increased income tax take, not because income tax rates went up, but because there's so many more people in this province earning so much more money. And yet, in a year in which we are taking in more revenue than ever before, we can really only balance the budget by this little bit of alchemy that they're doing by pretending that capital costs somehow aren't part of the budgeting process. And what's disturbing about that is in the days when we ran up huge deficits under Don Getty, it was at a time when oil prices were falling and the economy here was not strong. Here we have a scenario where we've got the strongest revenue projections in provincial history. And let's say these are projections. We don't know what the price of oil is really going to be six months or 10 months from now. But even in a scenario in which we have unprecedented revenues, we're still needing to fudge in order to present a balanced budget. David, you've been looking at this through the municipal lens largely. What does this budget mean for Edmonton? Well, Edmonton, uh, it's a good news budget in some ways for Edmonton and all Albertans because this government's committed to building infrastructure. We went through the 1990s with the Klein government uh, where they uh, thought it was more important to balance the books. They, uh, prices were low, labor was low, they refused to build, and we had an infrastructure deficit in this province. This government's taken a different tack. It's very positive, I think. They're, they're uh, borrowing when uh, interest rates are low. They're building schools, roads, important things. Um, for Albertans, talk to people in, in the suburbs of Edmonton and Calgary, they need schools. We need the Ring Road in Calgary and Edmonton to get around this this city. On the other hand, it's a very bad news budget for Redford herself because I think she's alienated, further alienated her core support in Edmonton and Calgary. Um, she was indicating, uh, the throne speech indicated, that there was going to be uh, a renewal of long-term funding for LRT. People got their hopes up. This is, this is one of the core, I think, hopes of this uh, group of people, the people who elected Redford, and those hopes were dashed again. This is why we're calling this the sad Don Iveson episode. I mean, he looked very forlorn, like someone had destroyed his favorite Lego LRT setup uh, at yesterday's press conference. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's very much, you know, it's, the, it's that Charlie Brown's look on his face when Lucy snatches the uh, the football out from under him. Don Iveson gave the State of the City address the day before the budget, and he was hugely complimentary of the provincial government, quite conciliatory uh, towards a room full of cabinet ministers. When I wrote a column that was a wee bit critical of that approach, people said to me, oh no, you're going to see Don Iveson's new strategy. It's going to work. The province is going to come through with this LRT money. They've been promised. I mean, everybody was saying to, to me and to David, oh, you know, the LRT money is there, the LRT money is there. It's going to be great. And I don't know how accurate those impressions were, but certainly David and I talked to disparate people who had been given a very clear impression that there was going to be either new money in the Green Trip Fund or the, uh, or an increase in MSI in the Municipal uh, Sustainability Fund. And whether on purpose, by accident, by incredibly poor political strategy, Alison Redford raised expectations that were not met. And when you do that, that's much worse for you politically than if you'd never raised the expectations at all. Right. Amarjeet Sohi told me that Redford said, you're going to be very happy, Amarjeet, with this budget. 
well, yesterday after seeing the budget, I don't think I've ever seen Amarjeet so he's so disappointed and so angry. I mean, it takes she, a she, lot to make Amarjeet so he angry. She, it, she it, has a unique ability to disappoint people. This is the second year in a row this has happened. She was making the, the, the same vibes were happening with the arena, the same behind the scenes promises and the same incredible letdown and disappointment. She cannot continue to do this and remain premier of the province. It's just not going to happen. You cannot run a government this way. Right, because there is, as we said, there's money through the Green Trip Fund for LRT, but that money for Edmonton has already been committed to the Nate line, right? And, and, and then that's much of it. Right. That money was established by Ed Stelmack. Right. I mean, that, that $2 billion was budgeted and, for Green Trip years ago. And this budget does promise to outside of this three-year budget cycle, continue to extend Green Trip. But from what I understand, Edmonton needs that money now, or they need to know exactly what date that money is going to be in the bank so that they can go to the markets to get this. To LRT. go to the markets and to get the federal, so, so to get the, 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 the federal share of things, which is which is contingent on, a, a, I think, a 2015 start date. Oh, what a mess. 2008. Stelmac promised that money in 2000. It should have been all uh, allotted, paid out by now. The only way you can call green trip long term is it's taking them forever to to pay off the promise that was made a long time ago uh with the same with msi msi should be 1.4 billion a year right now should have been 1.4 billion a year uh by um 2010 and, and when, they still when, haven't and when, reached they still haven't reached a billion dollars a year to the municipality and when david says should it, that doesn't mean that's what david would like i mean that's what the government had promised exactly. that, it, that that it would be indexed isn't exactly the right word for it, but that MSI money would be increased to keep pace with the rate of urban growth. You know, it's not just Don Iveson who was sad. I had a very funny exchange with the the mayor of Calgary on Twitter yesterday, um, in, in which the word he used to describe the provincial budget and its LRT funding was, bah! <laughs> <laughs> it is Twitter after all. I mean, I get, but maybe that says everything. I really myself was puzzling over this last night because as, as Kathy explained to us, this budget anticipates more than $44 billion in revenue. We've got the operating surplus on the, on the, which is great news for Alberta. We've got huge construction projects that are going on in this province. As, as you talked about, Highway 63, the ring roads, which for the 2000s, when I was covering City Hall, was the capital region's number one priority. And those are finally getting finished. That's a major, major projects. Um, so, so how do we go from that to this disappointment that you're feeling, right? Like it's it's got all this good news, and yet here we are. Well, you know, she, has a, about she, it. she has a unique gift to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. The biggest the biggest uh, thumb in the eyeballs of, of Albertans was this two billion dollar future fund. <laughs> I mean, here we are. We're saying for the future, we need Calgary and Edmonton. There's a mass consensus of people and voters voting in politicians who are saying this, wanting this. We need LRT in these two cities to have this province advance. So they create a future fund, $2 billion for who knows what. Is it for a high-speed train, which seems to be, you know, the pet project of people who stay at five-star hotels and want a fancy train system between Edmonton and Calgary. But it's not on my list, and it's not on most Edmontonians' list of, as a need for the future. So they create this fund, which seems to be for someone's pet project, either the, the train or maybe an Olympic bid, who knows what. So what would you have done differently then in this budget if if you were to do it? I know what I would. I think that I would add to the funding through a fuel tax. You know how we pay for healthcare costs through cigarette taxes? Uh, well, we help contribute to that. I think, I don't know how much a one or two cent increase in fuel tax would bring in, but surely you could earmark that for transit projects and 
that wouldn't be an unreasonable hit to most Albertans' pocketbook. No, it, it, would, it would send a price signal to people, too, that, you know, if, if, you know, a gasoline tax is very politically unpalatable for people who pay for gasoline, but it is an excellent way of sending people a price signal that says, conserve gasoline, use public transit. I mean, it would have, you could trumpet the greenhouse gas benefits of it. It would have been an easy political win. But I mean, Sarah, what you really put your finger on is that this is, you know, I, I said to someone, perhaps this was unkind. Oh, I'll say it again anyway. Um, that you know, it's the Princess Diana method of budgeting. This is how Princess Diana managed her weight. Uh, we binge and we purge. Last year, the sky was falling. Bitumen prices were, you know, uh, not what they were supposed to be. We had to cut, cut, cut. It was a crisis for the universities, a crisis for this, the education system. So we go from crisis, crisis, crisis. This year, ooh, look, it's raining money. So let's spend all the money. It, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. You need to have, for heaven's sakes, some kind of stable funding mechanism, whether that's eliminating the flat tax and going to a, a you know, a mature graduated income tax system, whether that's, oh, you know, that's the third rail nobody wants to touch, a royalty review, a sales tax, a gas tax. We need to have some kind of sane conversation in this province that gets us off the cyclical up and down uh dependence on the price of resources. I said fuel tax because the federal government already earmarks money for municipalities through its federal fuel tax. We already pay a fuel tax. That's why I don't think that would be too painful a change. But David, what would you do? I I don't think this was rocket science. It's just listening to people, especially if you want to stay in power, listening to your core constituents, the people who brought you to power, listening to your base. That base is, is represented right now by Nenshi and Iveson. You just had to listen to the, those guys and figure out a way to fund, to, to fund transit. And it was a very simple thing she had to do. All she had to do was saying, I'm going to extend Green Trip and uh, we're going to put another billion dollars into it, which will be paid out from 2009 to 2025. Would you have borrowed that money? Like, is that what you... Wait, no, what, you, is you, that you, what take, you, you could take it out of, the, out of the imaginary future fund. I mean, what is the future fund for? It's it's for vanity projects. Yeah, and, and you don't have and, a future a, fund. A, an Olympic bid? Oh. So instead of the future fund, you would just put it in LRT in this three-year capital this, plan? We have record revenues. There's all kinds of different ways to manage the money. I don't think we need a future fund at all. So you, you get rid of that kind of hokum. And you build what your core constituents and what what a mass number of Edmontonians and Calgarians want, which is uh, rapid transit in these two cities. And, so you know, and if you're really set on the really super fast choo-choo train, and you know, I've I've ridden the TGV in France. I mean, th- those high-speed trains are impressive. I don't think we have the market in Edmonton and Calgary for that. If you want a fast train. 25 years from now, what you do is invest in LRT networks at either end. You create a rapid transit culture. You wean people off their cars. You get the cities moving properly. And then you can talk about having a train that connects them. The the reason I'm trying to peg you guys down on how you would pay for the light rail extension is because a part of me does kind of feel for the progressive conservatives right now. Because like I said, they are paying, still paying for things that Albertans have previously identified as major priorities. Those ring roads, like I said, I heard the entire capital region scream for years about that. Well, that's a huge commitment. Twinning Highway 63. Yeah, but three quarters of the ring road is built and paid for. I mean, under Stelmac, I mean, all they're committing to is to finish the last little bit of it. I mean, in Calgary, it's a different situation because their ring road is far, far behind ours. Right, but fi- and 50 new schools. I mean, and then I heard, you know, and I know that we got behind on infrastructure, but then 
we're then that you so you're still trying to pay for the 50 new schools that you've already promised and then there are school boards and parents and people saying but we need more new schools so i just don't know how they fix this this is a failure of vision and planning on their part because the money isn't needed right now sarah so you're right there's going to be two billion dollars spent on the completion of the ring roads if we needed all right now two billion dollars in the next few years for for lrt in calgary and edmonton that would be a problem but it's not needed LRT is planned far in advance. The contracts are being signed right now. We are going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars of federal government money. That that is going to lapse because of this bungle by the Redford government. They all they had to do was make a future commitment that they would meet that 600 million target down the road and this thing would be rolling and the ring roads would be built by then and they would have the money they would don't need the money to build ring roads anymore. Use that money then from your budget to build LRT. This is a colossal bungle on their part. And Sarah, I mean, I will say, to be devil's advocate, I mean, you're right. This government is still paying off that infrastructure deficit that David talked about earlier. I mean, all those years under Klein where we didn't build or fix anything, and that's created, I mean, we have all of this legacy infrastructure that was built for the baby boomers. None of us in this room is a baby boomer, I would just like to say. David has raised his hand. Okay, I'm not a baby boomer. Sarah's definitely not a baby boomer. So, you know, we're... We have a lot of infrastructure that was built in the 1950s and 60s, and like lots of things built in the 1950s and 60s, it's it's old. I mean, the school, the province is not only committed to building 50 new schools; they're committing to major renovations of 70 aging schools. So there are problems that the Redford government has inherited. But I would come back again and say, if we had some kind of sane. Uh, fiscal management in this province that didn't leave us completely beholden and dependent upon uh, volatile resource revenues, then we'd be able to plan. Then we'd be able to save. Then we'd be able to build. We'd be able to do all these things and have a balanced budget. Paula, sometimes you confuse me because at the beginning of the episode, I felt like you were really channeling your inner Danielle Smith talking about <laughs> debt. And now here you are sounding like Brian Mason. I don't know what to do no, with but, you, but, but, but there, I, I want to ask yes, yes. what do you think Albertans will think about the debt piece of this budget? I think that uh, that uh, Horner has it right, that uh, if you talked to most Albertans, they would be in favor of borrowing at low interest rates to build uh, key infrastructure. There'd be very little debate about that. And I think that the Wild Rose is going to have to seriously rethink uh, to get elected. They're going to have to rethink this, uh, taking us back to the Klein years where we didn't... Uh, take any debt on but we also didn't build key infrastructure it was a mistake then it would be a mistake again now so I think that that yeah there's 20 25 percent of people who would agree with that policy but the majority of Albertans would say take the loan build the schools build the roads build LRT but I I think I don't disagree with that and I don't think that it's actually such a bad idea to borrow money now when interest rates are at historic lows. And I don't think it's such a bad idea to invest in infrastructure, which remains a provincial asset. What annoys me isn't that they're doing it. What annoys me is that they're doing it and then pretending that the budget is balanced. If you're going to be honest with people and say, we're taking on this debt, here are really good reasons why, here's our plan to pay it off. But then don't be all excited that your operating budget is in the black. Thank you, Danielle. Bazinga. Yes. <laughs> there, there are very, very few people who have who have seen that, you know, Danielle Smith and I are this much in sync. Uh, 
I have a unique ability to see past so many things. Look, now, we should, we'd be crazy to talk about this budget and not talk about some of the other things that were happening this week around provincial politics, local politics. You mentioned Mayor Don Iveson gave his state of the city. But Paula, there was another huge issue. It's the elephant in the legislature that was was playing, continued to play out during question period on the same day as budget day. Can you tell us a little bit, just quickly sum up what's going on and what the latest is regarding Premier Redford's travel expenses? Well, just when Premier Redford had assured us that Albertans no longer cared about her $45,000 trip to South Africa for Nelson Mandela's funeral, a new uh, travel scandal broke in the legislature, a much smaller amount of money, but a much more emotional one. This is a question of whether or not Redford has been using the private government plane on personal trips, taking her daughter and her daughter's friend along on business trips and on things that aren't quite business trips. Um, You know, as one Twitter critic put it, uh, you know, using the government plane as a family SUV. So the premier uh, said that she would pay back her daughter's friend's travel expenses, but she and House Leader Dave Hancock were quite ferocious in defending her right as a working mother to take her daughter with her on these trips. I have to say, as a working mother myself, who has certainly dragged her daughter along in ways that maybe people were not sure were entirely professional, I do understand. The Premier has an extraordinarily busy life. She has very little personal time, and I actually don't think it's unreasonable for her to bring her daughter with her on some government trips. What is not reasonable is to create the perception in the public mind and perhaps in the public purse that she's using the plane less on government business and more as a personal convenience. What's your take on this, David? If the if the plane is being used for government businesses, if it's a government trip, um, I don't have any problem with uh, the daughter being on the plane or the daughter's friend being on the plane. It's up in the sky anyway. I do have a problem if when they get on the ground and they have to pay for extra hotels and stuff, if they're charging that to the government, that that shouldn't be a government expense. But it, that plane's up there anyway. Redford's going anyway. What does it matter if there's a few extra people on it? I and I And I actually think... I applaud the premier for bringing her daughter on that plane. I think it's an excellent uh, thing that she's doing to stay in touch with her daughter like that and to bring her daughter into the adult world like that. We need uh, that kind of connection between the generations. I guess the, the other question, though, is, is she using the plane, which is a much more expensive way of getting around, and not flying commercial because then she can bring her daughter for free? And that's where you get into slightly more awkward territory. If she has to go to Vancouver and if she flew WestJet, she'd have to pay for her daughter versus if they're taking the plane merely as a convenience. Personally, I have to say, I'm a little phobic about little planes. I wouldn't get on that plane, not just for free. I wouldn't get on that plane if you paid me. And if I were a politician, I would be in every departure lounge shaking hands and kissing every baby. I mean, if I were her political strategist, I would tell her, fly commercial, don't fly business or first class, fly regular class because the political dividends that pays are huge. Yes, it would be inconvenient and it would take more travel time, but I would argue if I were her political advisor that the political upside of being the woman of the people and chatting up people in departure lounges would be huge. I just don't think that's Alison Redford. I don't think that's because she thinks she's better or richer than us. I think she's an introvert and I think probably she takes the private plane. Klein took it because he could smoke. I think Redford takes the private plane because she just frankly doesn't like being around a lot of people. And as an introvert, I think she uses that plane time to depressurize. I'm going back to the budget now, stepping away from flights, going back to trains. What is Edmonton doing wrong 
when it's making its case to the province. Because like you said, this is a second year in a row where there has been extreme disappointment. No money for the Edmonton Arena. Now no money for LRT. So where is the city going wrong? I, I, I'm beginning to wonder if it maybe isn't the province. Is the city pitching something wrong? Two very different mayors, two very different styles. Uh, and they both get, um, I don't know, hoodwinked. They both get rooked. They both get betrayed in the same way. So I don't think it's, I don't th- it's two very different projects as well. It's not the, the, the city's fault. This isn't anything to do with what the city's doing or the mayor of mayors of Edmonton or the mayor of Calgary is doing. This has to do with the way Redford's running her government. And how do you get through to her? I, I don't know. Um, she, she seems to not be, she seems to conduct herself like a high-flying UN official and I don't know. But is this a you failure? You have to travel in those circles, I guess. But is this a failure of our Edmonton MLAs? Because, yeah, I mean, we elect a f- some opposition MLAs, but we have a fair share this of PC MLAs, the and they got put no, in there. I mean, I, it's I, all on the premier. No, I disagree with David, and I agree with Sarah. I think it is a, I think it is a failure on the part of our Edmonton MLAs. I mean, I don't, you know, if, if, if you're at the Edmonton caucus, if you're cabinet member, if you're deputy premier Dave Hancock, if you're former deputy premier Thomas Lukaszik, and you can't get the premier to see not just that this is good for Edmonton, but good for her politically, then they are failing too. But I also think Sarah is right when she says that the city needs to adopt a different strategy. And I don't think it's about yelling at the premier or whining for the premier or being nice to the premier. I think the city is going to have to have a serious conversation about what it can do to find alternate ways to finance this, whether that means asking Edmontonians to make a significant uh, increase in city property taxes, whether that's the city trying to get more entrepreneurial about finding investment capital from the private sector. I don't have the answer, but I think it's pretty plain that being dependent on the province is not working for us. And I think the city needs to have a much tougher and more visionary conversation and a more gutsy conversation about how we become masters of our own house. We pay enough taxes. We need the province. We are paying a ton of taxes to this province. It's time they invest some of this money back in the cities. We are getting, we have a terrible deal in this province. The The industrial tax base of this province is being dominated by rural counties. There's $1.5 billion in, in industrial taxes. $1.4 billion of that goes to rural counties every year. It, <laughs> it dwarfs It dwarfs MSI. And there's haves and have-not taxpayers in this province. Edmonton taxpayers are have-nots. We should not be footing the bill fully. We are already stepping up in a huge way for this LRT project. The province has got to step up. They shouldn't be able to sidestep this. And the correct tactic is to keep your eyes on the people who should be paying and not let them shirk that responsibility. But actually, David makes a really good point. We're talking about alternate funding strategies, changing the way that industrial tax base works. Um, to rationalize it so that not just Edmonton and Calgary, but cities like Grand Prairie and Fort McMurray and Red Deer and Medicine Hat get their fair share would be a good step. I wish everyone could have seen David's face as Paula was talking in the to her previous answer because there would have been a sad David Staples hashtag <laughs> as he shook his head in disappointment at her answer. Now I I must say that I I was in, I'm in no way disappointed by our debate. I think this has been a really good conversation oh i use the word so thanks guys and i don't want our listeners to be disappointed either so we should not neglect our good stuff from the gallery which is our regular segment where we suggest good political reading viewing or listening that we think everyone should check out 
So we've got another listener recommendation. I love these. Please keep them coming. This one comes from Keith Silva, who got in touch with us via Twitter. And he recommends a series on international drug polity by San Ho Tree, which he describes as one of the uh, best he's ever uh, best pieces he's ever seen on this subject. So Keith says he heard of Tree, who is a uh, foremost expert on the subject of, I guess, drug policy, and he's also a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and director of its drug policy project, which focuses on replacing this war on drugs that we've heard about over the years and uh, switching that out for some public policies that focus on health and safety. So the point is, what Keith shared is a link from thefix.com, which is a website dedicated to addiction and recovery issues. And the, this particular piece is the second part of a talk that Tree gave in Colorado and was recorded by Alternative Radio. Uh, Colorado, of course, just legalized marijuana. So this is not a short read, but it does include some Canadian content. So I actually I will be reading this on the weekend. Thanks, Keith, for that recommendation. Okay, Paula, what have you got? As I was at the mayor's State of the City address this week, um, someone from the mayor's office tried to get Ken Hughes, the Minister of Municipal Affairs, to wear a button that said, uh, YEG for LRT. And the minister put it on, let me take a picture. And his assistant said dryly in his ear, very courageous minister. And uh, <laughs> that is, of course, a quotation from uh, Yes Minister. And I'm going to suggest, I mean, this is a, an old television show from the late 1970s, early 1980s in Britain. But I've been really shocked at the number of my young colleagues, uh, young political reporters and young uh, political contacts that I uh, talked to at the legislature have never seen Yes Minister. And I honestly don't think it is possible to cover politics or understand politics, parliamentary politics, without knowing Yes Minister and its sequel, Yes Prime Minister. So even though these shows have been out there forever, I'm going to suggest that if you've never seen Yes Minister, Minister, you need to watch in honor of Ken Hughes. You can find lots of episodes for free online on YouTube. And the creators of the show also put out two wonderful books that were the um, uh, novelizations of the two series. And so uh, that's my classic, my classic recommendation. I guess I've got some viewing to do. Have you never seen Yes Minister? I guess my time as a tail end Gen Xer, uh, no, I haven't Just actually Just lay off The Walking it. Dead. Okay, <laughs> all right. I want to give a plug to something that our Calgary Herald co- colleagues have started. They've started a video segment on politics, provincial politics. It's called Inside Politics. They posted their first episode last week. It was Don Braid, Chris Varco, and James Wood talking about provincial politics from their perspective down in southern Alberta. That's all for this week. There's four ways to keep tabs on the press gallery and to get in touch with us. There's edmontonjournal.com's opinion page where there's a, uh, you can see the press gallery icon. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and facebook.com slash the press gallery where we'll post all these links. Thanks for your support, and we will be back next week with more political chatter.